Welcome to the Placebo Magic Podcast, the podcast about theatrical spiritual practice for atheists. I'm your host, Durmak, the wizard and peasant lord of this vast 10-acre realm of Habdur, also known as Farm Code Gary, also known as Garrison Benson. Greetings, Placebo Mages. Today on the Placebo Magic Podcast, I have a special guest, my older brother, to discuss a wizardly tome called King Warrior Magician Lover, Rediscovering the Archetypes of the Mature Masculine, by Robert Moore and Douglas Gillette. First, I'll give a brief overview of the book, and then we'll jump into the discussion. King Warrior Magician Lover was published in 1990. It's a book about Jungian psychology, basically the school of psychology that looks, that looks through the lens of mythic archetypes. Also, this book belongs more or less to the mythopoetic men's movement of the 80s and 90s, the authors being contemporaries of Robert Bly, Michael Mead, and others. This men's movement is highly relevant to placebo magic in that it was a group of men using mythology and ritual to heal both individuals and the broader culture, without necessarily buying into supernatural or pseudoscientific beliefs. It existed not in opposition to feminism, but certainly as a sort of counterpoint to the feminism of the day, furthering the notion that while toxic masculinity is causing major problems in our society, the solution is not to shun masculinity entirely, but to cultivate it and celebrate it in its more mature form, less competitiveness and domination, and more nurturing and creativity. So this book in particular, King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, presents a model of male psychology based on those four archetypes represented in the title, describing what each archetype looks like in its healthiest, most mature form, as well as in less healthy forms. Basically, if you picture each of these four archetypes as a triangle, as you mature, you're building up the triangle until the two sides meet at the point, meet in the point at the top. The two sides of the triangle represent less mature expressions, the shadows of the archetype, one side representing it in what they call the active pole, which is to say an egoistic, inflated, aggressive expression, and the other side representing it in the passive pole, a negative, depressive, deflated expression. When you're less mature, you're going to swing between these two extremes, but as you grow, you learn to integrate them into one, where the two sides come together at the top of the pyramid. So, for instance, for the king archetype, the positive edge is called the tyrant, while the negative edge is called the weakling. Integrating these two poles, you grow to express the king archetype in its fullness. These four triangles join together to form a pyramid, each triangle's strength reinforcing the other three, symbolizing the interactions between these archetypal modes of being that help to bring out the best in each other. Also, there's one further layer of complexity here, in that addition, in addition to this pyramid of man psychology, the book also presents a pyramid of boy psychology. In our mental image here, the idea is that as you mature through childhood, you first build the smaller pyramid of boy psychology as a foundation, and then layered over top of it, you build the pyramid of man psychology. The pyramid of boy psychology consists of four archetypes that are each parallel to one of the four archetypes of man psychology, where the adult pyramid has the king, the child pyramid has the divine child, picture Jesus in the manger surrounded by serene farm animals and a magical star in the sky. Where the adult pyramid has the warrior, the child pyramid has the hero. Where the adult pyramid has the magician, the child pyramid has the precocious child. And where the adult pyramid has the lover, the child pyramid has the edible child. Basically, the overarching difference between the child versions and the adult versions of the archetypes 
is that the child versions possess a sort of innocent grandiosity, the sense that anything is possible and that the whole universe belongs to you personally, while the adult versions have an added layer of humility, realism, groundedness, and selflessness. When you grow, you don't destroy the, this pyramid of boy psychology, you just build on it. So you always remain in touch with your sense of unlimited possibilities, but you also get in touch with your own limitations. Before we jump into the discussion, I do want to clarify one more point. When this book talks about masculinity or masculine psychology, it's not talking about only those aspects that are distinct from femininity or feminine psychology. So picture a Venn diagram, the left circle representing masculine psychology and the right circle representing feminine psychology. This book is not just about the section contained only in the left circle. It's about the entire left circle, including the part that overlaps with the right circle. And from the perspective of the mythopoetic men's movement, the overlap is quite large. So by saying here that something is a facet of masculine psychology, the authors are not saying that it's not also a part of feminine psychology. They're certainly not saying that it's territory claimed exclusively for men. So in our discussion, we'll later touch more on how well this book holds up against the gender and sexual politics of today, almost 30 years after its publication. Anyway, with that introduction out of the way, let's get started with our discussion. So, I've, our guest today is my brother Jeremy, who is a vegetable grower at a, a winery, and he's the Poet Laureate of Napa County, California. Greetings, Jeremy. Hello. Howdy. <laughs> Welcome to the Placebo Magic Podcast. <laughs> Thanks, I'm happy to be here. <clears throat> All right, so anything else you want to um, say in w by way of introduction of yourself? No, that was great. Okay. I mean, I, I will. I mean, I will say that um, that I first, you know, this uh, this book comes out of the mythopoetic and Jungian Jungian psychology movements, and um, I think we're going to talk a lot about Iron John by Robert Bly as part of this. Yeah, and um, uh, I've been steeping myself in lectures and books by Robert Bly and Robert Moore and Michael Mead, and um, James Hillman. Um, I've read a lot, and I'm reading more and more and listening to more and more. So I might bring up, you know, subjects and topics from these other resources. Oh, that are, okay. You know, they're all in a similar vein. Great. Oh, and I should say for the audience, too, that um, <clears throat> the reason I invited my brother on the show, besides nepotism and... Besides that, I wanted to have the technical difficulties of the first interview episode happen with uh, someone who's related to me, so they <laughs> will still talk to me afterward. Um, the other, <laughs> we'll see. The other reason is that Jeremy was the one who introduced me to uh, this book and also to Iron John, which that I had that I read previously. So um, yeah, so let's jump into the discussion. So before we yeah. before we go through these four archetypes do we have any kind of overall thoughts we want to talk about we can get back to some of the at the end too but um no no i don't think so okay let's just, let's just jump into these four archetypes so we're, we're just gonna for the sake of simplicity we're gonna skip over the boy psychology um section which is in the book that's just one chapter where each of the adult archetypes get their own chapter and Aside from what I mentioned in the introduction and what might come up in conversation, I think we'll just kind of skip that because it just adds a lot of complexity. But so the first archetype they 
go into here. It's called the King. And the King is, uh, has a couple of different kind of facets that he's concerned with. There's um, order, which is about creating law and order in the domain, um, living righteously so that order emanates from your person. There's kind of a, an image that they describe here, which is the, the idea of, of a sort of a geometric world that sort of emanates out from the king. So kind of like a, um, like a, like a city that's laid out in like sort of a, a, a big circle with, that's like subdivided in a kind of geometric pattern where the king sort of sits at the hill at the center of the city. The idea is that that archetype introduces that feeling of order into your life. So it can be order in your environment, but also order in your mind. And then another facet of the king is blessing, which is basically acknowledging what is good and giving credit where it's due. So it's, it's kind of complimenting people in a, in a genuine way and letting them know where they're succeeding and not just complimenting, but also just sort of blessing things that are good, not not in the, not just in the admiration sense, but sort of in the uh, what would you call it, like the just things that are sort of inherently good. You know, it's like not just it's not it's it's like kissing babies, that kind of thing. <laughs> the babies didn't <laughs> yeah. the babies aren't they didn't earn the kiss. They're just you know they're just good because they're babies. Um, <laughs> So yeah, and then um, the the king kind of the king uh, feels blessed by the sort of the sort of broader cosmic king force, and the king sort of passes that blessing down um, to the mm. kind of the people that are sort of under him. And um, so for me, what I've noticed about this is when that when you embody this archetype more fully and in a healthier way people tend to start looking to you for that kind of approval and they, they sort of yeah. bring things to you that they want your blessing on. <clears throat> mm-hmm. um, I think this kind of, it's just sort of um, you start radiating that whatever it is, this sort of regalness that people instinctively turn to you when they crave um, approval or admiration. Oh yeah. So the third, a third facet of the King is fertility or generativity. So, um, mythically, the king is the source of variety of the variety in the forms of creation. So, um, like in a lot of mythologies, there'll be like a uh, a god that basically is the source of all all the variety in the world. Where they, you know, they're sort of like the the god that's like the father of all the other gods, or something like that, or or the god that's created all all the um, you know creatures or that kind of thing. And, um, can we, can we talk about that for a moment? Yes. Like, you know, what does that mean for me and you? Is that just cause it's just kind of an abstract idea to me yeah. just in that, in, in the way you just put it um, yeah. for, for me in my life, I don't know how, um, you know, I'm not going to be creating a world or other beings necessarily oh, speak for yourself <laughs> <laughs> i don't have a vast uh a vast 10 acre um hobdor to manage myself um, but. um and so well, i'm just wondering if there's um 
some other way to think about that. Yeah. Or maybe we can come back to that later. I mean, I, I guess I kind of saw it as sort of creativity, generally speaking, although there's also a creative component to the, to the lover, which we'll get to later. But I kind of felt like the king, it's like the, the ordering part of creation, where mm-hmm. where I think the lover is more of this kind of like the sort of flow of creation, like the sort of like, you know, writing the kind of being in the zone of writing poetry or something like that. Like, you know, you're um, like your Jack so, Kerouac, so like stream words, of consciousness um, sort of thing. Yeah. And then I think the king is much more of this sort of like this creating something that's ordered, you know? Yeah, so the, there's kind of a chaotic creation which would maybe fall in, into the realm of the lover. Yeah, exactly. And then there's like That's order creation it. or putting putting the lover's creation into order. Yes. Is is the king's role. Yeah, I think that okay. kind of makes sense. And the, the, it's interesting because both mm-hmm. of them have well, those are the two types that have creativity as a facet. They're also the two types that have sexuality as a facet. Um Mhm. Where in this case, the fertility, like mythologically, a lot of that, like that creation, it comes with Zeus or so and so, like sleeping with a billion different kinds of creatures and women and whatever else, mm-hmm. and creating all these other offspring. That, <laughs> um, but then yeah. you know, in terms of I, the way they talk about it in the book, they definitely link the fertility, the the creativity and the sexuality of the king together, right. And similarly with the lover, obviously, but yeah. Well, a couple of things that I think about the king. Um, I mean, I think it is a central uh, figure, a central archetype, and kind of. I think it's interesting that the book talks about the king first, because I kind of view the king as kind of the capstone, or, or. I mean, in a lot of the myths about kings, like the Arthur story, you know, the Arthur has moved through these other archetypes first yeah. before he's able to become king. Well, and if I remember right, I think the and, authors say that too, that, that basically most of the time the king is like the last archetype to sort of come online as you're maturing. Yeah. Yeah, well, if I can read a section from the book, it uh-huh. says... The king, as Perry says, is the central archetype. Like the divine child, which is one of the boy um, archetypes. Like the divine child, the good king is at the center of the world. He sits on his throne on the central mountain or on the primeval hill, as the ancient Egyptians called it. And from the central place, all of creation radiates in geometric form out to the very frontiers of the realm. And I think... When you mentioned, you kind of talked about the geological center of the kingdom. And in that, I thought, too, of the Buddha and Siddhartha and the different gates that Siddhartha left the kingdom in or from to experience different parts of the world that he needed to experience before he was um, enlightened. Hmm. So, like... Each you thinking like each gate kind of representing another facet of life? Yeah, yeah. In the context of this book, each gate for Siddhartha represented a different archetype. Okay, that he needed to confront and experience 
before choosing enlightenment. Right. That before he could choose enlightenment and become king or become the Buddha. Right. Yeah. I also think for for me, the last few years I've been thinking of Mr. Rogers as a kind of king. Uh-huh. I mean, he literally, you know, he has um, the king puppet. Yeah. But I think he uses his puppets to act out different shadow forms of his character. Oh, yeah, definitely. But over in the way that he talks to children and and kind of gives blessings to children through through his television program, hmm. I really see a lot of the king in doing that. Yeah, that's a good point. And especially um, as we'll get into it. Well, let's go ahead and get into the Shadow King, and then we can come back to Mister Roger for a second. Because I, um, yeah. So yeah, the Shadow King. This is sort of the the king in this sort of its unhealthier expression. Um, there's two. There's the active pole is called the tyrant, and then the passive pole is called the weakling. And so the 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 active pole, the tyrant, is kind of um, threatened by new young life in the, in the kingdom and seeks to destroy it. Uh, it's jealous and hateful of things that are beautiful, strong, excellent, young, new, etc. Uh, exploitative or and verbally or physically abusive of those in his domain, and kind of narcissistic. So it's it's they use a some some um, uh, biblical examples, which the one that comes to mind was one was um, King Herod, who like in the uh, the beginning of the Gospels, when Jesus is born, then King Herod basically try. You know, he hears that there's a new, a new king had has been born in his um, jurisdiction, and he's trying to hunt down the, hunt it down, and so he, you know, orders all the babies younger than what younger than two years to be murdered. I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one, and then the other, the other example they gave was King Saul when David is anointed right. to be the next king. Then King Saul basically, you know, tries to kill him for a, you know, spends a long time trying to hunt him down and kill him. So that you know, the right. the the king is kind of this. It's the there the, the shadow the the tyrant is sort of this you know this force that's sort of constantly scanning this kingdom in this sort of paranoid way, looking for whatever the next threat's going to be. Um, but then the other, the other pole, the passive pole, the weakling, um, oh, actually, you know, I kind of mix it up here because the, the para, the paranoia and suspicion is, is part, listed as kind of a part of the weakling. Um, <clears throat> um, but para, it's a paranoia may be justified because of the enemies that you've made when you're sort of acting as the tyrant. So like all of these shadow forms, you're oscillating between the active pole and the, and the passive pole. And so I guess the tyrant facet of it, you're kind of striking out against these sort of threats, whereas the passive pole, you're sort of living in fear of them. But yeah, so to come back to Mr. Rogers, to mention when you mention him as the, as the yeah. king, I think of like, you know, you there's there. You could definitely see like this weakling um, sort of facet, except that it's been integrated in a way that doesn't serve as a negative, you know, where he, he's someone who doesn't, who's not afraid to appear gentle, you know? Right. Um, even though he also appears to be someone who's totally in control. So he's got, he's got both of these, those facets to him. And I think that's kind of partly what makes him a king that, you know, if he was in the room, 
even as an adult, you would turn to him and want him to like, you know, smile at you. <laughs> right. Well, I think also, I mean, um, you know, there's that really famous video of him um, in, in Congress uh, testifying before Congress about trying to get funding for PBS mm -hmm. or for public, um, the public broadcasting system. Uh -huh. And in that, in that video clip, you see him moving through a lot of different emotions that a king would, would have. Mm -hmm. Like an, you see him angry and you see him um, kind of shut down the attacks from the senator leading the the um, uh, the testimonies. Yeah. Um, but then you see him move through, and and then and then he you know brings out he he offers some blessings to the senator, and he offers some care and concern. All while like singing this song of, that is for children, right? Yeah. Um, so he's very much kind of he's very much in charge of his domain, and but you know, isn't afraid like you said, isn't afraid to to show his vulnerability, right? Yeah, and I, I always he's kind of someone I always think of with regard to my my whole um, kingdom of Habdur thing, and that <laughs> his the fact that that he. I guess I think of Mr. Rogers as being one of my biggest role models and one of the most like admirable people in American history. And mm -hmm. I'm always kind of like, Oh yeah, that guy had a lot of puppets <laughs> and, he, and he had this whole <laughs> little world that he made up. Um, and I think like, Oh, if, if that's, if that can be part of your life and you're like the most, one of the most admirable people in history, then I could do it too. <laughs> and it could right. probably serve some yeah. kind of purpose to, you know, create this little micro kingdom and, you know, that all kind of are acting out different parts of my psychology, I guess. Totally. Yeah. So. The warrior. Yeah. Let's ready to move on to the warrior. Okay. So. Yeah. Yeah. So the warrior. Um, so the warrior is characterized by alertness, decisiveness, and uh, like a healthy type of aggression. Uh, a constant awareness of death in the sense that it's sort of living in the moment and knowing that death is could happen at any moment at any moment um a warrior has a loyalty to a greater cause or ideal that's the you know the the healthy version of the warrior has that um physical and mental discipline and skill uh the warrior is strategic rather than being blindly aggressive so a lot of times the warrior will favor a different approach rather than a, you know a, a straight up attack um if it can minimize if the I can, harm you go ahead if i can interject here that's i think that is another place where creativity enters into the warrior archetype. Mm, yeah. The, the strategy, especially a strategy that avoids too much destruction, almost always necessitates some kind of creative approach to the problem or to the attack, so to speak. Right. Yeah, and especially when I was when I was reading um Iron John and then we talked when he talked about the warrior in that book. Um, I was reminded of Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. and other people who are not warriors in the in the usual sense, and that they're you know they're pacifists, but 
they're warriors mm-hmm. and that they have this very strategic approach to fight and get what they want. And yeah. um, because they're being strategic rather than blindly aggressive and that they're trying to ultimately win their opponents over to their side and make them into allies. Um, and because they have this loyalty to a greater ideal, it forces them to be way more creative in their approach than you would be if you were just fighting, you know, but with violence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Yeah. So then, uh, the warrior, the warrior, uh, sets aside comforts in pursuit of a greater purpose. And the warrior is able to create emotional distance to view situations objectively. He's kind of able to disconnect from the, the sort of emotional reality of what's happening, which, you know, is no, nowhere more evident than like an actual combat when you're, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, actually killing people, then you have to sort of disconnect and turn, basically turn off the part of your brain that would feel compassion um, since you're, you know, you're fighting in the moment. You can't stop and really consider that or feel that. So, but that, but the, the, the warrior just in general life is, is kind of the part of you that's um, kind of able to cut off your emotions and, and get a more objective look at things. Uh, so should we go into the, just go right into the shadow warrior aspects? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So the, the active pull of the shadow warrior is the sadist. So uh, it's kind of characterized by cruelty, wrath, hatred of things that are weak or vulnerable or feminine. Um, and the, this cruelty um, toward the weak stems from your own repressed feelings of weakness. So it's kind of like you're projecting your weakness and, and then attacking it on something outside of yourself. Um, it's also characterized by workaholism. And basically, in general, an inability to put away the sword and sort of switch out of warrior mode. So it's like, you know, I think a, I think another way to to name the shadow this the active pull of the shadow warrior is the soldier. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times, especially in our culture, we confuse the warrior with the soldier and and praise the soldier, right? Instead of. Um, instead of looking for the actual true warrior. Yeah. Like, I think that's definitely true with the workaholism aspect where we praise mm-hmm. workaholism kind of regardless of whether the, of what the cost might be and of what the goal might be and what actual progress might be being made. We're just like, Oh, you know, good hustle. <laughs> yeah. Right. But yeah, I think that yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then the, the passive pole of the shadow warrior is the masochist. So this is kind of being, you know, being a pushover, letting others control and belittle and abuse you. Um, so yeah, like I want to go ahead. I want to just say again that a lot of these shadow archetypes are really two parts of the same coin. Yeah. So that the sadist, um, who is cruel and and um, you know, wants to attack the weakness of others is so because he inherently feels weak himself, or right. he has at one point um, been weak and let people walk all over him. And so instead of, instead of growing and maturing out of it, he's, he flips and attacks. And I think in, in our culture, I think that is what ha- is happening a lot with so-called, 
involuntarily celibate men uh-huh. who who perhaps have not protected themselves as they sh- should have done um, or needed to do. And you mean in um, the context of like dating? Yeah, and yeah, in the romantic dating like the, context, the sort of nice guys syndrome. Yeah, exactly. They've been nice guys. They've they've done the emotional labor, so to speak, and have not gotten what they thought they deserved. Um, and so instead of maturing and realizing that they needed to protect themselves, um, you know, they've gone into this kind of aggression and lash out with anger. Right. Yeah. And I think, um, well, I did, we just showed a couple weeks ago at the theater that I managed, we showed, um, it chapter two, actually, I'm actually the thing I'm thinking of from the first it from two years ago, or, um, which I just, I watched right before we showed it chapter two, but in that movie, there's like this bully who, you know, he's just kind of this, the real monster sort of thing along, you know, that's terrorizing these kids along in the meantime, while this, while the evil clown is, <laughs> and <laughs> there's a scene where the kid, you know, you've, it's toward the end of the movie, you've seen this bully, you know, being horrible. And then toward the end of the movie, you get to see a little glimpse of his home life where his dad is this police officer. And his dad turns out to be this, you know, horribly abusive. And his dad is like making the bully feel making the bully look and feel weak in front of his kind of cronies. Uh-huh. Um, and, and the dad's kind of saying to these other kids, the other, the other, like his toadies, like, you know, look at, look at this. Is this, this doesn't look so strong now, does he? And hmm. so it puts it in the context of like, Oh, you know, the reason he's a sadist is because he's being abused, you know? And I think right, that's, right. it's kind of a common trope, but I think it's, it's common because it's true to life that, um, you know, it's like when you've experienced a lot of weakness, then kind of a knee jerk reaction to that is that when you get any kind of power to try to turn that power on other people to, to feel like you're in, you're the strong one. Yeah. So one thing that this book, um, that I thought was a little bit problematic potentially is the way they describe the warrior in this book does definitely seems to glorify colonialism and cultural genocide and that a lot of their kind of descriptions of, warriors are about basically like the crusades and like people spreading Christi- Christianity or, or, you know, Western culture. And I was just kind of like, okay, are you guys saying that this is cool? Because it sounds like you're saying that it's cool and they don't really stop to qualify. And I was like, I guess I, um, I guess the idea that I guess fighting to spread good ideas or good ideals or good ways of life could be benign, but they would have to be fought in the right way and in the right arenas so that I was thinking of like with um, in like the world of science where you kind of have some battles between competing theories, but they kind of, you know, the only way that those battles can be fought is with ideas and in debate and in, and in, you know, evidence. Whereas like, spreading a culture even if it's like a better culture in the sense that i don't know whatever metric you would judge it by it's like is it really a win if that culture dominates another one and suppresses it and destroys its way of life and you know what i mean Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And then the other um, facet of that where – so these these authors really kind of yeah, – they describe the warrior as somebody who goes out and, like, claims new territory, whereas um, Robert Bly in Iron John, he describes the warrior as pretty much just a defender, somebody who protects boundaries rather than somebody who conquers. So, I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, I th- I think I I read – more in Gillette's description a little differently than you did. I mean, I also love what Robert Bly wrote about the warrior as a defender. He talks about a a tribe in Ireland, I believe, who um, who patrolled the borders of Ireland. Um, yeah, yeah. He, you know, he, as a metaphor for our inner warriors. Um, so I can't, I'm not really able to separate um, these other descriptions of the warrior from from Moore and Gillette's description. But I think that, that their point in, in referencing a lot of these um, historical conquests um, and, and colonialism was not to, to, was not to say that those are good things. But just to say that the warrior is a big part of our culture, uh, historically speaking, for sure. But but like they say, they be, kind of begin that passage by saying, some psychologists see human aggressiveness emerging out of infantile rage. The child's natural reaction to what Alice Miller has called poisonous pedagogy, the abuse of baby boys as well as baby girls on a massive scale. And then they say, we believe there is much truth to this view, especially in light of the prevalence of what we will be calling the the shadow warrior. But we believe that the warrior should not be identified with human rage in any simple way, quite the opposite. We also believe that this primarily masculine energy form and there are feminine warrior myths and traditions too, persist because the warrior is a basic building block of masculine psychology, almost certainly rooted in our genes. And that's when they begin to give examples all th- of all throughout history of different groups conquering different okay. places. So they're just justifying the, they, the claim that it's rooted in our genes, basically. Yeah, and then at the end of that section, they say... Hold on a second. The warrior energy then, no matter what else it may be, is indeed universally present in us men and in the civilizations we create, defend, and extend. It is a vital ingredient in our world building and plays an important role in extending the benefits of the highest human virtues and culturally achievements, cultural achievements to all of humanity. It is also true that this warrior energy often goes awry. When this happens, the results are devastating, but we still have to ask ourselves why it is so present within us. What is the warrior's function in the evolution of human life, and what is his purpose in the psyches of individual men? What are the warrior's positive qualities, and how can they help us men in our personal lives and in our work? And I also, I think that they do talk about the warrior being aggressive but I think they don't mean it in, in a in a violent way, right? They in the in the fullness of the warrior. They mean it 
in a kind of robust, like, go get them, let's do this attitude. Right. Um, in a in a healthy way. They also, if I can read another section of the book, they do they do talk about the warrior as a destroyer. They write, the warrior is often a destroyer, but the positive warrior energy destroys only what needs to be destroyed in order for something new and fresh, more alive and more virtuous to appear. Many things in our world need destroying. Corruption, tyranny, oppression, injustice, obsolete and despotic systems of government, corporate hierarchies that get in the way of the company's performance, unfulfilling lifestyles and job situations, bad marriages. And in the very act of destroying, often the warrior energy is building new civilizations, new commercial, artistic, and spiritual ventures for humankind, new relationships. Hmm. Yeah, I, I like that. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think of it kind of like, you know, it's like you're, you're, you're not going to salt the soil of your enemies, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's like, you're, it's, that's why, you know, with Gandhi or something, it's like, the idea is that you're, you're fighting to win, you're not fighting to destroy your enemy. And in that, you know, in, in that case, it's like you're fighting to, to make a new ally too. Yeah. And I, I think with, you know, fighting in the more, the more everyday sense, it's like, yeah, it's like if you have, if you need to fight for something like in the workplace or whatever, or in a relationship, it's like you're not trying to destroy the other person's self-esteem or their career or whatever. You're just trying to, you, you're being more strategic and surgical and trying to fight the actual problem rather than fight the person. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, that makes sense. I, I think... That kind of puts their puts their discussion of conquerors in a little more context, because I definitely I think, I think mean, it's I part say, of our psychology for sure. Yeah, I will say that I think I think the warrior is one of the hardest archetypes to grapple with, no pun intended, um, because because we don't want to go to war, right. essentially, and so even kind of to say, oh, I need more of the warrior in myself or I want to honor the warrior. Um, people who don't know what it means in its full extent, I think a lot of people will assume that one means that they want to fight and that they want to become violent. Uh-huh. When really what, what I mean when I say it is that I want to protect myself um, better. For what it's worth. Yeah. Okay. That, no, that makes sense. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's let's go on to the magician. So, the magician is an archetype that uh, is kind of the in the domain of highly specialized or secret knowledge, which could be virtually any kind of knowledge: psychology, computer science, astronomy, medicine, plumbing, basically anything that's beyond the range of common knowledge or common sense. And the, the magician uses his special knowledge to help humanity manage the chaos of natural forces. So it could be environmental forces like cold or hunger, or darkness, disease, um, or, you know, more modern environmental forces like traffic jams or something. It could also be inner forces like lust, loneliness, restlessness, rage. Um, so the, the magician is basically concerned with controlling and channeling forces. So like insulating 
people from the danger that sort of raw forces have. So think of like um, electrical, like the sheathing on electrical wires. It insulates the wire so that you can channel the power to constructive ends without um, people getting, you know, damaged by it. And it's the, the magician's concerned with containing raw power within sacred spaces um, so the, the magician is kind of concerned with ritual and how to um, create a space where it's safe to expose something more raw without it kind of running amok, which I, I guess I'm being a little vague here, but we can kind of get into more concrete examples in a bit. But the other, the other facet of the magician, which is really important, is that the magician is interested in teaching and sharing knowledge with other people. Well, a couple of things I think I... I thought it was in this book, but maybe I'm confusing it with another uh, lecture, either by Robert Moore or or one of these other guys. But I heard the the magician described as one who deals with things unseen, mm. and I really liked that description of it. Um, but I think for you and me, I mean, we grew up highly involved in the church as pastors, kids. Uh, we're both farmers and poets. And so I really saw how the magician might play into our lives and especially our kind of familial history yeah. and legacy. Especially being not just pastor's kids, but pastor's kids of a pastor's kid. Right. That were just multiple generations in the mix. Yeah, I think. And well, not, not just the pastor's thing, but teachers, too. You know, we have right, various true. teachers in our family, which is also a facet of the magician. Um, That's right. Yeah, no, I definitely since that i think you know like i i think i was telling you recently that now that i right now i'm i manage a small movie theater and i i feel like this uh <laughs> there's kind of a a magician aspect to that in terms of managing the sacred space of the movie and where you mm-hmm. you know you got to you got to turn the lights down at just the right time you have to you know do juggle the 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 movie trailers and the music and everything and the smell of popcorn and the there's you know different ritual thresholds that people have to cross through to get into the into the auditorium and I remember one time I was standing there after the movie by the exits sort of greeting people as they mm-hmm. went out and mm-hmm. <laughs> I just had this momentary like flash of like oh I'm becoming my dad because of how right. our dad would like stand stand at the in the lobby of church like greeting people as they leave. And hmm. it's like, oh, I'm just, you know, I've created this little service here where we go and watch the Avengers or something. Um, but, yeah, that's funny. But huh. wow, yeah. I, anyway, um, uh, yeah. So the shadow magician, yeah, consists of the active pole, which is the manipulator, and the manipulator uses his knowledge to manipulate people without their knowing it. Uh, he withholds information from people that would benefit them. He hoards special knowledge to feel and to be regarded as superior to other people. And he's kind of detached from actually living life. He's sort of sitting back with um, with a lot of knowledge and observing things, but not really participating. He doesn't have the wisdom or the virtue to contain dangerous forces. He lets them loose without concern for the consequences. Um, so these manipulators are kind of everywhere in our in our society in terms of propagandists, marketers, um, professors who belittle their students, weapons designers who design weapons without concern for the consequences, 
people who design mm-hmm. social media platforms and smartphone apps, casino operators, oh. fossil fuel engineers. Um, the social media one really stuck out to me because I'm doing this digital declutter for the month of October. And, you know, the, uh, there's just so much of the social media where I feel like the people who created it didn't know what they were unleashing on the world. And Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know. I didn't really pay much attention to Mark Zuckerberg's testimony before Congress this week, but, but, you know, Oh, I didn't even know he had one this week. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I've been pretty unplugged. No, it's like every other, it's like every other week, uh, these days, but even, I mean, even Google too, I just read an article about how Google's search, um, you know, often leads people down some really weird pathways of thought. Right. And, you know, it's a, it's, likely an algorithm that's that's doing it but it's echoing um you know it's echoing evil thoughts back at people yes yeah and one of the examples they give in the book was from uh fantasia the disney movie with the the magician's apprentice where mickey mouse um he basically makes this i forget exactly he makes a broom he enchants yeah. a broom to like do work for him to like to take buckets of water and then it kind of multiplies and there's like all these magical brooms that are moving buckets of water and then he you know ends up flooding the place and he doesn't yeah. know how to stop them so it's not like he had a malicious intent to begin with but he didn't have the wisdom knowledge to contain the forces that he was unleashing right and i think that's true with a lot of these people where they you know i don't i don't think the people who designed Google's like search algorithms were like, you know, twisting their mustaches and cackling when they did it, but they're still acting in the role of the shadow magician because they didn't really, (laughs) they didn't stop to ask whether or not they should. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. It's the the Jurassic park engineers that are really the shadow, the the manipulators. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Unleashing dinosaurs. Um, yeah, so the other the other poll, the, the passive poll of the shadow magician is the the denying innocent one, where innocent is in quotation marks. And uh, this, the denying innocent one, wants to be esteemed for having special knowledge, but doesn't really want to do the work to pursue knowledge. He doesn't want to help or teach other people. He's envious of people who are living their lives fully um, and sharing knowledge with each other and helping others. He wants to derail and deflate them. And he manipulates others while maintaining a naive or innocent facade. So I, this was of all, all the the various sub archetypes in the book. This was the one that I found the most confusing, and I kind of wish mm-hmm. I'd had like an example from Star Wars or something to <laughs> put it more in context. Yeah. Um. Well, I was I thought maybe. A good example from the real life is mansplainers Uh or men who explain things to women that even the men don't really know much about. Right. And often the women know more about in those situations. So So it's really about trying to derail and deflate people. Yeah, or just they they want to have the special knowledge and to be knowledgeable, but haven't done the work to actually 
know what they're talking about. Right, right. Um, I also thought of some bosses that I've had. And, um, I mean, it kind of it, it kind of echoes a few of the other shadow archetypes that we've talked about. But I've had bosses who, you know, didn't want to teach me how to do things, lest I become better at it than they were. Mm-hmm. Um, or... Um, or were afraid of me and other colleagues who did the work and could do it well. And so they, they wanted to derail and deflate us. And then also, you know, I've confronted, I had confronted a boss about this and, and he was very quick to, to blame me and to feign innocence. Mm. Um, and so I, I, see how this can work in in that situation or i see this this shadow archetype fitting in there Mm -hmm. yeah and i guess especially as being you know the other side of the coin as of the manipulator i can definitely see that where the manipulator going into that mode of of being you know really slippery and denying any kind of knowledge of any manipulation. And, and I also think maybe, um, sorry to interrupt, but I, th- I think a good example or a good explanation of this shadow magician is, you know, one who knows exactly what is going on and doesn't do anything about it. Huh. Like, you know, there are many people at TSA who are you know, logging all the emails that they're downloading off of my server. And they're not, they're not whistleblowing Mm -hmm. on the government, even though they're, you know, they're writing all the code to do all that work. Yeah. You mean the NSA? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. The TSA has their own problems. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they have at first, I was like, "Man, the TSA is really sp- spending a long time with your phone." <laughs> no, that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so let's move on to the lover. So this, yeah. is the, this is the last of these four archetypes. The lover is associated with vividness, aliveness, passion, sensory experience, embodiment, hunger and satisfaction, playfulness, and shameless display. Uh, enjoying and making art and um, the lover's sensitivity to nuance leads the lover into compassion and empathy and a sense of connectedness with all of existence. Um, the lover experiences the joy and the pain of being alive. So basically by, by opening the door to the sensitivity, you gain access to the joy, but it comes with the pain and the lover tends to stand against the artificiality of boundaries um, so in this way, it's different from the other three archetypes because the king, the warrior, and the magician are often concerned with creating and maintaining boundaries and creating a mm. sense of order, whereas the lover is about transgressing boundaries and sort of blurring lines and merging with other people and that kind of thing. Hmm. So, you know, all of these four archetypes, they kind of interact with each other in ways that temper each other and... And the lover 
um, helps the other three archetypes to remain more humane and connected and um, compassionate, while the other three types help the lover to set boundaries. And so there is one thing. Well, actually, I'll come back to this later. Um, let's get into the the shadow lover. The shadow lover consists of the active pole, which is the addicted lover. And the addicted lover basically doesn't want to set any limits on pleasure or connection. Um, he feels overpowered and enslaved by the vast variety of sights and sounds and feelings, and is compulsively moving from one shallow pleasure to another, vaguely searching for some kind of ultimate ecstasy, but unable to experience the depth of experience that comes from staying still and putting down roots. Hmm. <laughs> when I when I read that, I thought of how when I eat chicken nuggets or french fries and there are multiple sauces available to me i will not choose any one sauce but i will take them all and dip each fry into each like one at a time each sauce and try each sauce <laughs> i don't think there's anything wrong with that i don't necessarily think that's the shadow lover i think that's just the lover <laughs> um, but yeah the shadow lover is basically associated with addictions and bas- basically almost any kind of addiction, whether it's substances, sex, porn, food, um, buying things, travel, media. And um, they didn't mention this because the book was written in 1990, but I was instantly reminded of like addictive internet use. So for me, like, um, my, I think, you know, my curiosity and sort of, uh, well, I've often kind of found the internet addictive when it comes to just things that are mildly interesting or funny where i'm not even like real i'm not i'm only spending a few seconds on each thing and just scrolling through scrolling through like on reddit or something um yeah it's the new channel surfing yeah and it's like i'm you know it's like i'm it's the lover has this sort of aspect of like just loving the world and there's that's part of what i'm experiencing when i'm doing that where i'm like Oh, that's interesting. I, you know, just finding like fun mm-hmm. facts and and just kind of taking experiencing delight in the weirdness of the internet and w- of you know human culture and things like that. But it's such a shallow and draining thing where it's like I'm not really delving into any of these. I'm just you know flicking through thing after thing. Right. Right. <laughs> so that that's what I thought of right away when I hmm. was reading about this kind of addicted addicted lover aspect. Um, oh, and then the passive pole is the impotent lover, which is kind of a, a flattened affect, depression, an inability to feel moved by anything, boredom, lethargy, lack of interest, sexual virility is either listless or actively repressed by the other archetypes, the warrior and the magician. So basically, like a, you know, a lack of a lack of lack of sexual virility for one or the other reason. Hmm. So, yeah. Uh, so, any thoughts about the any other thoughts about the lover? Um, well, do you want to talk about about the uh, problematicness of it? Oh yes, thought? yeah. Um, so yeah, there's one there's one point in this chapter that I feel like I have to address. This being the placebo magic podcast, not the magic magic podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> in that, in this chapter, they they sort of briefly dip into this sort of pseudo scientific territory where they posit that perhaps there is a universal collective unconsciousness that contains the memories and experiences of everything that ever lived 
potentially not even just humans, but everything um, that the lover is tapping into, like kind of like the force, which they specifically mention. And I should say another problematic point is they misspell Obi-Wan Kenobi's name. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> but, um, but they, you know, they, they kind of like, they tell this story about this kid who's like going out and just sort of sitting with nature. And he's like imagining what the different animals feel when they're like crawling around or whatever. And then they kind of posit like, well, maybe he actually is feeling that. And this is the kind of thing that I just, you know, I think that mm. that kid probably was having a really mystical experience, but in a book about like psychology, you can't just drop these weird little bombs of like, oh, maybe this, maybe it, you know, it's like you kind of, there's no evidence of, at all that they posit. It's just like an intuition. And I think like there's a responsibility that you have to, to demand evidence when you're talking, when you're going to, you know what I mean? You're they're I, yeah. I think that I don't, I don't have that much experience delving into Jungian psychology, but I have kind of noticed that being a trend throughout where they're not like just wholeheartedly embracing this sort of magical thinking, but they're sort of like, well, maybe. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, there, there's all kinds of communication that happens on channels that we don't realize is happening on in terms of mm-hmm. body language and um, pheromones and whatever else that, you know, we gradually keep discovering different things like that. But I just think like the burden of proof is on the, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, it just, just something, I, it doesn't really diminish the value of the chapter at all. It just, cause I, I think it still works as a metaphor, even if it's, you know, even if I think the whole, the, the, the concept of, of a sort of the force as a collective unconscious, you know, web or whatever is is bs i think like it still works in the metaphorical sense and it still is experientially true well yeah i think that's the main the main takeaway is that the lover taps into that um taps into the collective unconscious and you know it feels connected to all of life and that's what's important it's not that a a person is actually tapping into something beyond themselves. It's that they feel like they're tapping into something bigger and, and more beautiful than themselves. Right. And that is the important piece of it. Right. No, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just had to mention it because I, it's like, I guess I had to sort of clarify that I can't fully endorse this book with my <laughs> placebo magic podcast hat on, you know, I will say that, you know, there's more and more data and studies being done about trauma and stress and how those things are, are indeed passed through our genes from generation to generation and how it can take up to seven generations for a person to to rid themselves of that generational stress. So is it like a within their bodies? A gene that's act becomes activated under trauma and then that yeah, activation. Yeah, is... or it's a gene is changed because of stress huh. that happens. Interesting. And that is passed from generation to generation and Yeah. Well and I definitely think the collective unconscious in the sense of like I think that our brains have internal like like i think through evolutionary history our brains have internalized certain things that um 
you know, it's like a lot of the things that we, a lot of the things in our brains are learned, but then there are certain things that are just sort of coded in and they're mm-hmm. not necessarily very clear. I mean, I think there's a lot of times they're sort of vague things that we, so I, I think a lot of these sort of archetypes are partly learned and partly like ev- learned in the evolutionary sense, you know, they're genetically learned. But when it comes to the idea that you're, that there's a, there, that there's, there's a communication happening, that's where I'm like, mm, <laughs> I need some evidence. Well, I want to, well, I, I also want to say that empathy is a very real thing. And yeah, whether or not you're, you're communicating in an extra sensory way uh-huh. doesn't matter, but you are, you are feeling things for other humans or other, other objects. Right. Um, that is, you know, creating chemical, chemical injections into your own bloodstream. Right. And making you feel different things. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, but anyway, um, let's see. Uh, anything else about the lover before we move on? I mean, I'm really curious about. I hadn't thought much about how the um, the lover is different from the other three archetypes in that it wants to break through the boundaries uh-huh. and con- and connect where every all the others seem to be about more about holding the boundaries and. Ho- holding order um right so i just think that's really interesting and i find that really intriguing yeah you know what what maybe um what i thought of as we were discussing here is that when we're talking about the force and things like that i i think when you when you look at like the way they train jedi it's like they train them first to be a lover then to be a magician and i guess then to be a warrior uh, well, I don't know about the, where the king comes in, but you know, it's like when Obi Wan Kenobi's training Luke when the when he's got that visor on, you know, uh-huh. he's like it's like reach out with your feelings, and it's like the, you know before before they before they even learn how to like sort of focus and channel, they have to first just learn how to reach out and connect with the Force, and I think um yeah. in uh, Iron John when he talked about the lover. Well, actually, when he talks about the warrior, he talks about how, you know, you can't really be a good warrior if you haven't first learned how to be a lover. Yeah. Because uh, yeah, you don't I have that really important. that connection to, you know, a humane, um, you don't have a humane connection to the world. Yeah. And I think that that's, um, you know, I think, I mean, I think all these archetypes, you know, they all fit together in these different ways and all impact and play on each other. But especially in regards to the lover and the warrior, like having the lover prevents the warrior from going into that shadow place. Right. And, you know, you know, prevents the, the warrior from becoming a destroyer um, and a, and a soldier and keeps them honorable. Right. Right, and I, I guess we should say because I don't know that we really clarified this exactly that the lover is not. I mean, sexuality is definitely a component of it, but it's really a lot broader than that. And totally. it's it's like as much um, could be as much as lover of 
food and natural beauty in the you know in in the landscape and um you know it can be an an intellectual kind of thing too about you know loving art and loving history and loving you know it's basically about about loving in the in the really broad sense yeah but sexuality is definitely a piece a piece of that yeah but um Okay, so the the last section of the book, after those the chapter one chapter about each archetype, there's um, in the conclusion they go into these exercises. Which, when I read this chapter, the the conclusion, I was like, oh, we definitely have to talk about this on the show, because uh-huh. some of the exercises are virtually verbatim like witchcraft, except for with some of the trappings changed, but the actual activity is almost identical. <laughs> so there's four exercises that he or that the authors mention the first of is called, they call it active imagination dialogue. And it's, it's essentially an automatic writing exercise where you're basically writing a dialogue with some aspect of your personality that has been causing problems. And um, so basically it's like you, it's like you play the, the role of the ego, which is kind of like your central personality. And then you're sort of reaching out to say, you know, who are you? And then it kind of writes back and says, or, you know, or, or you might say, what do you want? And it says, well, I want you to, I want you to buy a six pack. And then you'd be like, oh, well, why? And it's like, you know, you just go through this exercise and kind of suss out what's going on. And with the idea being that you're probably going to discover some archetype that's, that's represents unmet needs that you have. And because the needs are unmet, it's acting out in a negative way. So I really reading this, I was like, Oh, so we're basically just making contact with a demon (laughs) more or less, or a spirit. Maybe is a better way of putting it. It's like, it's like a malignant spirit that just needs to, to have its needs met. Yeah. It's a good way to think about it. And then the next, the next uh, exercise they mentioned is they call it invoking which is basically you're visualizing one of the archetypes in its fullest, healthiest form and possibly with the help of symbols or objects. Um, and they can, they, they liken it to prayer. You're kind of ritually accessing a God. So you might try to come up with a visualization of like the King and sort of meditate on that and sort of feel the King giving you its blessing and then helping you to become a King. And this is kind of, something you'd see it you know in church with like visualizing god and then visualizing all these different kind of figures from the bible like in stained glass windows or in statues or things like that or saints uh and then the, the third exercise they bring up is they call it admiring men which is basically finding role models who positively exemplify the archetypes um especially the ones that you're trying to express more fully and finding ways to connect with them. So either finding role models that are actually people you know personally, or um, kind of famous people that you can read their biography or watch biopics or that kind of thing. I think for me, this has been the the main activity that I've been part- participating in. Um, uh-huh. And not some. I mean, I ha- I mean, I have found mentors, um, but even just. Like anytime I'm talking to any other men, I just kind of have been thinking to myself, oh, like this is really great. 
and I'm like getting stuff out of this conversation. Uh-huh. And um, as I do that, and as, as I find things in other men that I am attracted to in a way, then I find that, you know, that is echoed in me. And then I look into myself and I find those same things that are in me. And because I've been working to appreciate them in other, in other men, then I start to appreciate them in myself too. Right. Well, especially those kind of traits where it's like, well, like with the warrior, for instance, it's like, it's hard to feel comfortable expressing that if you're a kind of, you know, a a left leaning young man in our, in today's world, it's, it's hard to feel comfortable expressing the warrior, even in a positive aspect until you start seeing other men doing it in a helpful way, you know? Uh huh. Cause it's, cause we're kind of, you know, we have the knee jerk reaction to sort of, we don't want to be aggressors or toxic men or, you know, and I think you kind of need to be able to see it and to know that there's to, to be able to see a good expression of it in the, in the world. Right. To feel that you can start to explore in that direction. Yeah. Uh, so the the fourth exercise they bring up, they call acting as if, which is essentially like fake it till you make it. So if you sense that you sort of need to embody a certain archetype, just sort of pretend that you already have. So just kind of imagine, well, what would I do if I was a, a magician or, or what would I do if I was a lover and just sort of pretend and then, you know, watch that pretending turn into reality as you um, sort of develop that, which is kind of related to a thing, a theme that's come up on the podcast a lot before where the idea that you sort of, of tricking yourself into virtues that you don't believe that you have. Like where we had the episode about parallel universes where it's like, you imagine a version of yourself from a parallel universe that has the traits that you want. Huh. I have sometimes um, thought of it like, you know, put a mustache on and then <laughs> like a fake mustache. And then maybe that guy has that thing. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think, well, I, this is slightly unrelated, but I think that putting on masks or um, wearing different characters is a great way f- to connect with parts of ourselves that we might not um, utilize every other second. Oh, definitely. Ex- yeah, well, like to exercise and play them out. Yeah, not too long after I bought my land, I was in the community a community theater production of Shrek the Musical, and I played Lord Farquaad, and I think that that gave me the opportunity to like explore the king archetype, both in some positive ways and mostly in negative ways. Mm-hmm. But it kind of got me more comfortable thinking of myself in that light, even though yeah, I was kind of. I was kind of, you know, hamming it up and playing up the his insecurities and his tyrant, his tyrant and his weakling, but it still kind of helped me to feel more comfortable in that sort of broader territory of letting myself feel that grandiosity or that right, right. Um, that leadership, I guess. Which is yeah, basically is like putting on a mask, except for the mask was these little baby legs. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> puppet legs <laughs> yeah 
Well, one thing I want to I want to say now that we've been through the whole book and we talked through all the four archetypes, um, as just just as we've been talking through them, I recognize that all of the shadow archetypes come out of one feeling primarily. If you really want to boil it down, um, all the shadow archetypes are acted out of fears of inadequacy or scarcity. And I think that scarcity and inadequacy are the interior and exterior presentations of kind of the same idea that either you are not enough or there is not enough for you. Right. Right. And I think, I think scarcity, if you, you could frame inadequacy as being a scarcity of regard or mm. a scarcity of blessing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. You know, where you become, you become competitive because you're like competing for blessing. Right. Yeah. So I, th- so uh, in my personal work, I've really been thinking about the idea of inadequacy and recognizing that. And another way of talking about inadequacy is talking about shame. And so for me, recognizing kind of my addiction to shame has led me to go back to these archetypes then and and see how I've been living in the shadow archetype as I've been experiencing my shame. And it's really shown a light on my own tendencies so that I can start to move out of the shadow archetype and into the mature full archetype of each of these four archetypes. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. That kind of leads into my, into my next question in terms of general discussion, which is, does it, do you feel like there are certain archetypes that you've identified with more or less than others or certain of the, of the shadow archetypes or that kind of thing? Why why don't you go first here? Well, well, definitely I've, I've, you know, read the description of the magician. Uh, and like we talked about earlier, I, I, as a poet, um, and in many friendships, you know, I'm called upon to interpret the world or interpret others or my own emotions. And so Uh I really, I really saw a lot of myself in the, in the magician you know, a lot of my friends, especially in high school, emailed me or or talked to me a lot about things that were happening in their own life. So I became kind of this guru in a weird way for them, even though I didn't know what the heck I was doing. Um, and then for sure, the lover, you know, I think that I move through the world in this certain way. And as a farmer, I'm constantly in awe of of nature and all of its intricacies and vastness. I have a friend who is telling me about her experiences on acid and LSD and mushrooms. And I just thought to myself, man, I'm so glad that I never really got into any of those psychedelic drugs because I already feel 
so in touch with the world around me, um, mm-hmm. both both humans and nature, that I think if I got into psychedelic drugs, I would just drop off the deep end and never mm-hmm. come back. Um, so yeah, definitely, I, I saw myself in the lover and the magician. I and and definitely felt a deficit in the warrior. I think I've, I think as a thoughtful, empathetic man, I've always been a little worried about becoming the aggressive shadow warrior. And uh-huh. so I just I just thought that any expression of the warrior was a bad expression of the warrior which meant that I slipped into the into the passive shadow warrior and I think for especially in my romantic life have let women walk you know not walk all over me but I've kind of just offered them to take things from me and to use me in whatever way they see fit. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, ultimately that has, that has hurt me and it hasn't been until very recently when I've, you know, come to terms with my inner warrior and have seen how important having some boundaries and keeping those boundaries is. And so now I feel much more, able to let someone in and know that I will be protected uh-huh. and can you can can honor another person and I like I can be adequate enough that you know I won't have to give everything to them and they can love me even so right uh, and then the king I think you know, I think the king is such a linchpin and so connected to all the others that I've definitely felt in my life that, you know, gr- greatness can be achieved, but I've never wanted the responsibility of greatness. That I think the the king is is uh, representative of that rep that responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I don't, I mean, obviously I think that's the shadow. Some of the shadow King is not stepping up to perform your duty. And I think that's where I've been. And I'm, and as I've like been maturing the other three archetypes, I, I feel myself moving into a King role more and more. Mm. Yeah. What about you, though? What archetypes do you see yourself as? I think the the one that I probably feel like has dominated my experience more than any other has probably been the lover, but kind of in a weird way in the sense that I think that especially as a kid, it's like the my default way of interacting with the world was sort of through the lover, I guess, in the sense of like not wanting to set limits on things and wanting to just sort of explore, I guess. Uh But I think that as I got a little older, I started to develop the magician more as a kind of as a defense mechanism in the sense of like, I'm going to go sort of disappear down a rabbit hole, dissociate from the rest of the world and go learn some arcane computer things. And 
I think especially being in a house with three siblings, it's like it was kind of a way to, to create my own space was by learning this right. kind of arcane, you know, com- computer stuff and other, you know, just like I just learned a lot of strategies for diso- dissociation, which is kind of the opposite of what the lover does. But I think it's be- part of partly because of the sensitivity. Well, yeah, I was just going to say that when you when you feel things for the world in in, in such an active way, um, that can be too much if you're if you don't have a working warrior who is there to kind of let things in but but stand up for you nonetheless um then you have to develop ways to disassociate and and you know give your brain something else to do right yeah so i i think the warrior um that's that's something that i generally have not wanted to identify with. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely something that, that's like, I mean, I, I definitely have spent plenty of time in both of the shadow sides of that in terms of, you know, I, I just have a very yeah. strong sort of social justice orientation and well, not just social justice because before I was interested in social justice, I was interested in like moralism, I guess. And it was the same sort of impulse of like, you know, people are doing wrong, bad things, and I need to do something about it. And I think that that, in that sort of way, that's where the that's where the the active pull, the 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 sadist part has come out more. Is when I like, it's sort of nominally motivated by righteousness, but it kind of can come out in that in that attacking, um, destroying kind of way, rather than uh, in a way that's ultimately motivated by growth. You know. Uh-huh. But yeah, so the but the the king I I mean, I think that again like you said, it's it's kind of so interconnected with the other three that it's a little hard to I mean, it, it's just hard to look at it in isolation, but I think like I mean, I, there's always like I always had that kind of playing at the king in terms of making, you know, Lego cities and Minecraft worlds and things like that. Yeah. And making up my own, you know, drawing maps in my own little places. But as far as like I, I don't know if that really is the king or if that's you know, and I, I don't know if that really counts or not, even though it's it's along the same lines, but I think the I think in the last two or so years is when I really started to come more into the into the king when since I've owned land and yeah. kind of cast myself as the peasant sovereign uh-huh. Hobdur, it's like I've kind of been really deliberate about trying to develop that part of myself. And I felt for a long time, I've, I felt really drawn to the, cause well, we didn't mention this before, but in the, in this chapter on the king, they, they also talk about sort of Adam, you know, the biblical Adam as being, uh-huh the part of the king archetype, the mm-hmm. idea that you're sort of the, the primordial human or whatever that you're, I've had, I've had a strong connection with that trope for a long time uh-huh. and just wanting to, wanting to feel like Adam, I guess, like wanting to, wanting to huh. be in the garden and name, name the animals and <laughs> yeah, it's kind of hard to explain, but I think that that's something that like my fantasy of, 
buying land had a lot to do with that where it's like that's what i want yeah, and then when i bought it i was like i'm gonna make my own language and i'm gonna have to name all the animals in my language <laughs> <laughs> very interesting <laughs> so yeah and the, the warrior is something like like i said i i've definitely manifested parts of it in the past but i think in the last year or so or really the last like nine or ten months Mm-hmm. Is when I've really been like, okay, this is something I need to develop actively. Yeah, yeah. Same. Partly from the standpoint of protecting my space, so that I don't like, for instance, I don't bring stress home from work, hmm. and so that I can, um, well, just yeah, things like that. But then also, I've been wanting to develop it more in the sense of like, I want to find more effective ways to fight for what I believe in, in terms of you know fighting climate change and fighting you know this the negative aspects of our culture right yeah totally it's it's like i feel like i've been a kind of an ineffective fighter before yeah yeah absolutely same here i feel like i've um you know just swinging my sword around or running at someone and and they step aside and Uh you know plunge my sword into the earth and then can't get it out for three days or yeah whatever. do you remember that do you remember that time in elementary school when that kid uh ran at you with with his fist out and then you stepped aside and he punched a tree <laughs> <laughs> no no i don't remember that <laughs> he had to go to the he had to go to the office and get band-aids <laughs> all over his knuckles <laughs> At first, I thought you were making a, a reference to that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't remember that at all. <laughs> okay, I remember it pretty well. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> I thought it was funny, but... <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I think with, you know, both of us kind of mentioned the same, that we, you know, we feel more connected to the lover and magician. We feel like we need to develop more of the king and the warrior. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with family dynamics, too, where... I think in our family, like we saw our mom act as a warrior all the time yeah. and we saw our dad not really do it much at all. And I think similarly, well, I don't know about the king, but the, I, I we definitely saw our dad in, in the role of the king, I think, but, yeah. um, but the lover and the magician and, and the king are those, those we, those we had sort of a, our dad as a role model for totally, yeah. more so than the, do, other, yeah. than the warrior. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, what are like? What are for you as you're trying to um, get better in touch with the warrior? Um, in particular, like, what are your strategies for doing that? Well, yeah. So, um, well, one of the things taking a cue from this book, from the exercises section, I got a, I checked out um, one of Gandhi's books. Um, his like autobiography partly, you know, it's, it's like, I was like, well, okay, what warriors would I feel comfortable um, seeing as role models? Cause I'm yeah. just generally feel uncomfortable with the whole concept of the warrior to some extent. Uh-huh. So I'm like, well, I definitely think of Gandhi as a warrior and he's somebody I can definitely endorse. Yeah. So let's start there and then I can work my way towards other, but I've also, I'm back in the last winter when I read iron John, I was starting to sort of, just kind of meditate on fictional characters that I appreciate who are warriors uh-huh. like um, Spider-Man 
and Aang from The Last Airbender mm. and um, Luke Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi and uh, Gandalf. So especially yeah. Gandalf in his warrior facet, since Gandalf is more in the magician kind of realm, generally speaking. But totally, because yeah, I, I kind so. of cast myself as a wizard, it's like, uh-huh. okay, well, I'm 100% on board with being like Gandalf. Then like, yeah. well, Gandalf totally has a sword, too. And like he, they say, like in Iron John, where he describes the warriors being this sort of boundary keeper. Yeah. I think of Gandalf with his like, you shall not pass, totally, yeah. you know? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So that makes, I, I've kind of tried to pick ones that make it a little easier to sort of get my foot in there. Where Yeah, like, uh, same with Gandalf, same as Gandalf, like the, the Jedi and like Aang from The Last Airbender, they're sort of lovers and magicians first. Yeah. And so that makes it, I think for me, that makes it a little easier of a, of a connection. Whereas like, I don't really feel much of a connection to, to characters that are like warriors first and foremost. Uh huh. And yeah. so it's, it's just a little harder to sort of make, to sort of bridge that divide, I guess. Yeah. So what about you? Um, I'm trying to think since I had that question. I mean, one of the first things I did was read The Art of War by Sun Tzu. Okay. And I'm sorry if I butchered that name. No pun intended. But but I actually did not... I didn't get much help out of that. I read that like three years ago. And, and maybe right at first I felt like I gained some warrior energy from it. I'm kind of... I'm kind of interested in in some symbology of these different things which i think is kind of talked about in the exercises portion of of king warrior magician lover like i've been thinking about the symbol of a bear and Hmm. i mean you just mentioned how our mom was very much the warrior in our household and and you know i i think of her as she was this mother bear who often, you know, stood up and roared for us yeah. in different situations. And so I've been just trying to honor the bear energy, like her mother bear energy in me for myself. Uh-huh. And so I've like have made a couple of like patches with the bear with the bear image on it to wear on my clothing. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I re- and I do really think um, what what Robert Bly wrote in Iron John about needing to be a good lover before you can be a good warrior. Um, in in particular, he wrote, "One has to be able to dance before one can fight," and I really took that to heart. And shortly after I reread that for the second or third or fourth time. I actually went to a dance, like went to a a club and danced and was like, yeah, okay. So I danced. I'm a good dancer. I know I can dance. Check that off. Now I can be a good warrior. Uh-huh. Which is, you know, kind of a nice <laughs> threshold to at least be like, okay, now I can start on this next training. Right, right. Um, and I think that, I think that it's talked about in the book, but, you know, actually 
signing up for martial arts classes or, um, you know, actually training your body in some form of ritual fighting, um, which I haven't done, though I have done yoga and some other athletic things, but yeah. And I think just seeing, I think just seeing different, you know, imagining different, um, ways, uh, or imagining different metaphors for the warrior helps me like picturing, picturing a wall, but one that has a, a gate that is, you know, well manned where uh -huh. you know, people and goods are let in to the wall, but what is, what is not allowed is kept out. Uh huh. Um, so I think it, I think my work, although I, I have done some practical things, I think it's mostly kind of active imagination. Yeah, I, I should mention that you know you mentioned this thing, this picture of wall, a wall with warriors that I did build these. <laughs> um, I call them scare humans, but they're <laughs> they're they're like essentially scarecrows that sort of stand at the threshold to Hobdur. And they have spears and and um, shields, and the shields have some writing in my language that says, um, "Well, it'd be trans translated as to make space is to protect space," uh -huh. which basically is sort of a it's partly a pun because my name Durmak in in my language means space maker or one who makes space, mm -hmm. and so it's kind of a reminder, like, "Oh, well, making space also means protecting space," um, yeah, and. So that, that that was kind of inspired more by the the Robert Bly Iron John description of the warrior as being the the threshold protector kind of thing. Yeah. But I mean when I was making them it was when uh, I think it was shortly after I finished this book so I was definitely had in mind or well, maybe it was before I I can't remember actually now maybe it was before I read this but in any case you know I've when I walk by those guys every day I'm like okay it's a reminder to keep thinking about the warrior archetype. Yeah. And when I, it's like when I, they have, they're made out of, out of wood, but then they have these like birch bark masks for their faces uh -huh. and they have just enough personality where it's like when I go by, I feel like I have to sort of acknowledge them in some way. Huh. And to a large extent, it's like, it's just sort of, I, every time I go by, it's like I'm checking in with my warrior, my inner warrior kind of like, I'm like, okay, do I? Is there anything that I need to not bring home with me that, you know, anything that shouldn't make it through these gates that I'm carrying with me? You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. I'm like doing a little customs check. Hmm, and then there's also cool. the, the sort of sense of like, if I'm coming home to these guys and I kind of picture them asking me like, oh, how goes the war? You know, uh -huh. <laughs> and I'm thinking about my responsibility to hmm. my land in the broader human community in terms of climate change and hmm. um, things like that, where it's like, I feel like I have a responsibility to these dudes who are guarding my kingdom to go out and fight the broader battle yeah. so that my, you know, my place isn't under threat. Hmm. And I, I think that, you know, every time I pass them, I'm like, Oh yeah, I gotta, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the King. I'm the, I have to orchestrate this, our 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 involvement in this battle yeah know? <laughs> yeah so yeah um oh what well, well, is there anything else you're doing for the king in particular to develop that well i think um 
Yeah, I mean, I do, I do really think that that honoring the lover, honoring the warrior, honoring the magician, all of those, doing all of those will lead to honoring the king. But I think in particular, um, yeah, I think that I have been, this may be a bit of a stretch, but I think I've been in this um, place of atoning with the father, not so much our literal father, but more so, you know, a kind of other archetypal father. And, and really also, you know, the archetypal father out there, but also the archetypal father within me. And, uh-huh. um, as I, as I'm doing that and I'm doing that by fathering myself, which I think is, um, you know, telling myself that I have got this and that, you know, that it might be scary out there, but I'll be with myself. Things that like a good father would tell their kind of scared, nervous child to bolster them up and give them the courage. And kind of as I see, as I father myself and, you know, um, see myself more and more as a father, then I feel more kingly and right. relate more to to the all father. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. I I uh I mean obviously there's this my whole project of of being the peasant lord, the peasant sovereign of the vast ten acre realm of Habdur, which is um sort of I'm just, you know, similar to calling myself a wizard, I'm calling myself a king and it's sort of like their exercise acting as if, you know, I'm just like, all right, cool. I'm king of this place now. Yeah. Uh, but there's also more specific things I've been doing in terms of, um, well, okay. So like the, the idea of the, how they describe the king as being kind of this conduit for blessing where the king receives blessing yeah, and they sort of pass it on to their subjects. Yep. And, you know, like you, I've, I've kind of been in this sort of atonement with the father mode. And I think that, you know, I tend to gravitate towards people who are sort of authorities or, or at least they're sort of like older men or sometimes women too, but who I like, I sort of want their approval and I sense that they're, they're discriminate, discriminating enough that their approval would be, would be meaningful. Uh-huh. And then, you know, it's like sometimes those people turn out to suck and I, it wasn't yeah. worth looking up to them. And I, you know, and so, um, I was thinking about that. Okay. To bring back up Mr. Rogers. Yeah. I don't know if you ever heard this story that he told, tells about, about, um, you know, every morning he would go swimming for a while. And then when he got out of the pool, he would weigh himself and he always weighed 143 pounds. Uh huh. And when he looked at the scale, he would see the number one, four, three, and he would interpret that as, as basically one letter, four letters, three letters. Yeah. I love you. Yeah. And so he just, every morning he's like, Oh, how about that? You know, <laughs> just looks at the scale and feels loved. Uh-huh. And I don't really know. I, I can't imagine that he really thought that was a, a message from God because other people don't have that weight. You know <laughs> right. what I mean? Like, but 
but I kind of I like that idea of like just having a ritual like that that's a little silly but so anyway a while back maybe like a month ago I was kind of in this feeling feeling kind of frustrated with um just kind of craving that that sort of blessing or you know that that ordainment I guess yeah and I it was like a it was like a it must have been a month ago because it was the new moon and the new moon is tonight. Huh. So I was I went out in the field and was like, eh, I'm going to stargaze for a little while. And then hmm. so I laid down and then I was like, I forget what I kind of said, but I was kind of like thinking of, you know, Mufasa in the stars or whatever other those kind of tropes where the kings are in the stars. And I was like, all right, uh I guess I, I had kind of been sensing like I need to come up with the sort of I need to visualize this sort of cosmic king hmm. thing uh-huh. because growing up Christian, I just the Christian God as king to me always felt harsh and judgmental and kind of the opposite of blessing, you know? Yeah. What, I don't I don't think that's everybody's experience, but it definitely was mine. And so right, right. I was like, I need to, but it's like, I can't just live without that archetype. I need, I need to create a version of yeah. it. So I was just laying in the field kind of like, all right, King, I want your blessings. And then I just started to, yeah. So basically I just kept seeing shooting stars and I was huh. like, I just decided that I was going to call that like blessing. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> you, know? you have to do that. Yeah. And, in the placebo magic way, I'm like, cool, thanks, Sky King. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, that's exactly what I wanted, I guess. Yeah. Um, so I just laid there until I, you know, I just kept seeing them. I was Sweet. like, all right, I want one more. Give me one uh-huh. more. I'm not done until I get another uh-huh. one. And then I get another one. I'd be like, no, I want another one. Huh. <laughs> and I was kind of, you know, argumentative in a way, like in that sort of like, uh, uh, who's the guy in the Bible who like wrestles the wrestles god for his blessing um i don't know in the old testament is it jacob i think it might be jacob um no isaac i forget it's one it's one of those in that in that lineage that he like goes out and he like sees this other dude and it's heavily implied that it was god that he wrestled yeah but then he got like a wound in the process but anyway so it's kind of like that i'm like all right give me your blessing and then you know kind of refusing to take to stop stargazing until i had enough huh. yeah <laughs> so i don't know but for what for what that's worth i just felt like you know i just kind of was like i'm all right now i'm satisfied now i can now i have enough that i'm willing to like share it you right. know yeah like you were saying about about scarcity yep yeah totally i think that that i think that that the blessings I think for me, I've started to make a point to like give people blessings and like tell my coworkers they're doing a great job and to tell people I like that they, that I like them and why I like them. And that, um, you know, kind of like me bequeathing these blessings on the people helps me to feel kingly and then everyone wins. Like yeah. I feel kingly and they f- feel loved. So and appreciate it yeah. so it works out for everyone and i think that that too when you're feeling inadequate or if you feel like there's not enough blessings to go around then you start withholding those things for other people or you act 
Um, you act greedily and are trying to do things to collect the blessings, but when you just yeah. trust that you are enough and that there's enough to go around, then, or if there's plenty to go around, then you start just giving, you know, you just, you share and you, you give that up, give those blessings abundantly. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think there is kind of, you can just to a certain extent, you can kind of fake it till you make it. But I think that you really have to receive the blessing before you can give it a lot of times. Like I, I'm thinking of this, this mm. one guy that I, I'm going to try to be as vague as I can. Cause it's someone in my, well, it's someone in my, in my, someone who life listens who, to this podcast. No, no. Um, I don't think so. But, um, just, you know, someone in my broader community that I don't want to identify, I know, I know. but they're someone who's in a, in a position of authority, a lot of, in a lot of ways. And he's kind of like, I don't, he has a lot of this ty- the tyrant energy mm. where I think he's, he's kind of sees himself or would like to see himself as the King. And the thing is when he compliments people, it never feels like a, it never feels right. Uh-huh. Like it's like you can tell that he was making himself do it to counterbalance his criticism. Oh. Um. So because like he criticizes a lot, and so it's like when he compliments, it just doesn't feel like it's coming from. It's not. It's not that I think he's like lying about what he's saying. Yeah. It's that the compliment wasn't really like flowing forth. It was like forced. Uh-huh. You know. It's like he said to himself, well, I guess I better give a compliment now because that's yeah. what I'm supposed to do uh-huh. to be a nice person, you know, to be a like a liked, well-liked person. So I kind of think that you, you can't just be like, oh, I need to be a king. I'm going to go out and compliment a bunch of people. I think you have to first sort of bless yourself. And then once you've done that to the point yeah, where you feel point. satisfied, yeah. then you can go out and do it, which... I know for myself, when I got into mindfulness meditation, um, a lot of that was like, basically, you know, it's like you're sitting and you're observing things that come up inside of you and you're not judging them. You're just sort of giving them space, which I would kind of describe as a blessing in the sense where you're just like, yeah, hello. And there's not, you're not letting it take over, but you're not shutting it down either. And I think that practicing that, I noticed that I was just so complimentary of people all the time mm-hmm. <laughs> especially when i was first uh-huh. really getting into it where i would just i just kind of noticed myself spontaneously being like hey nice mm. shirt man you know things like that that i wouldn't normally have said I, I think it was sort of a byproduct of bringing the king energy to bear in my inner kingdom yeah it had you know it kind of became an outer effect as well yeah so, yeah, so another thing I wanted to discuss here with this book, especially with it being written in 1990, is to sort of discuss it from the standpoint of gender and sexual politics, because things have changed quite a bit in our culture in terms of what's what's considered, um, I guess, politically correct, for lack of a better word, or what's kind of on, just as things have progressed in terms of our understanding of how we're affected by our culture and how mm-hmm. it damages us and how the way people talk about gender and sexuality damages us. Yeah. So there's a lot of 
there's a lot of um, things in this book we could talk about. The first one that jumped out at me, so I thought that view, yeah, viewed through the tw- a 2019 lens, the fact that this book doesn't mention transgender men seems like a really hmm. big omission, um, which can, is somewhat problematic in that I would just want them to say as much, at least say somewhere in there like, this book applies just as much to transgender men as anybody else, or say this book is really for uh, cisgender men and not that there's not going to be others, you know, just kind of, I just would want them to be acknowledged and how they fit into the picture, you know? I would like that too, and I think, I mean, overall I'd be curious to read just in general, like a book, a mythopoetic book for queer or transgender people because I think there could could be a lo- there's a lot of myths out there that are uh, about gender. I would think. I mean, I know of some, but right. And there's a lot of myth mythological figures that are gender yeah. fluid. Uh, I mean, I think that I don't think it's in the in the original edition, but Robert Bly in Iron John in the foreword or the afterword or an epilogue to a later edition did. Um, he did talk about that, about how, you know, Iron John is written from a, a straight, straight cis male. I don't know that he might, he might not even talk about trans, uh, trans issues, but he does talk about, um, you know, how it's for heter- heterosexual males. But I've been, I've been giving this a lot of thought because I have, a number of friends who are queer or who have transitioned either way. Um, and I think, I mean, you, you mentioned earlier about the sort of Venn diagram, how this book doesn't necessarily exclude any, um, you know, feelings that, that are also feminine. And I think in general, you know, a lot of this mythopoetic stuff talks about, how there are female or feminine and masculine energies or archetypes in all of us. Like I talked earlier about, about wanting to incorporate more of the mother bear into, into my warrior. Right. Um, and you know, if I'm mature, I can mature my inner masculine archetypes, but if I don't also mature my inner feminine archetypes, then I'm still, overall an immature being or an immature psyche. Um, So I think no matter who or what you identify as, this information is beneficial. And even if you stripped it of gender or or gendered um, words, like if you stripped masculine and feminine out of it, like it would still be important to anyone who who read it, but I do think that um, that framing it in a way would be beneficial. I also, I, you know, I don't like. I think that our world is where it's at. With um, you know, we're still a patriarchal society. Um, there is rampant homophobia and rampant, rampant transphobia. And, um, you know, we are a transicidal society, if that makes sense. We, you know, 
trans men and women are being killed at, at alarming rates. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of that is because straight cis men are not doing the work that they need to be doing to mature these things. You know, if, if the lover is living in his shadow lover archetype, you know, he's not going to be able to love a trans brother like a brother, you know? Right. Or the, what the warrior, they, you know, they identify the, the warrior is trying to sort of strike out at any yeah, thing that seems right. feminine that, you know, that I think that's part of the reason that people are so hateful of trans trans men is that they're, or trans yeah. women rather that they're, um, there's some, I think it's partly, partly a projection issue where you see your own inner femininity. Yeah. Projected I also, outwardly. I mean, I also, it seems obvious to say this but i think a lot of um queer and trans men and women have done a lot of this work whether or not it's in the same context or the same language around um archetypes and union psychology but a lot of a lot of queer men and women have done the work around their gender identity by necessity. Yeah, exactly. By necessity, by the, the, the fact of their lives and the things that they need to do to, to feel whole and survive. And I think, you know, it's really would be beneficial for us as, as straight cis men to witness and to observe and to, and to really listen to, to, um, you know, the work that that queer men and women and trans men and women have done around gender and, and you know, to take it to heart and to see what they're doing and to, and to you know, follow and absorb it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, even though, like, I, there were certain aspects of this book and, to some extent, Robert Bly's book that, felt dated to me. I definitely feel like they both seem extremely relevant to today's politi- political climate when you see Absolutely, like yeah. I mean Donald Trump especially came to mind in really in all four of the shadow archetypes, but especially the the tyrant slash weakling archetype. Mm-hmm. And just toxic masculinity in general, it comes up a lot nowadays and you see it laid out so clearly in this in terms of um the uh these shadow shadow forms where you have like yeah the mansplaining that you mentioned earlier and kind of gate mm-hmm. gatekeeping in terms of the shadow magician um kind of wanting yeah. wanting to hoard the knowledge and keep other people out of the of the sort of um of the uh initiated uh community um like you yeah. see that a lot in in geekdom where it's like men kind of reacting against women who want to get into star wars or something it's like well you don't know anything about it um, yeah. instead of wanting to welcome them in, you know, and then you see, you know, the, right. the fear of strong women and, and the abusive domineering from the shadow King, the, the shallowness and sexual irresponsibility from the shadow lover, the cruelty and the fear of femininity from the shadow warrior. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I like that, you know, despite the fact that these books, they, 
they are from a, a limited perspective, but in a way that's kind of what's good about them because they're they they they're looking at toxic masculinity as a problem for men to solve. And absolutely, yeah, it's like they're not saying anything about 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 how women need to change or grow. Absolutely, yeah, I think that's really important. There's a few points where they touch on like on like in certain like uh, cases they're of you know people that they that they uh, worked with about women who cause problems for men in certain ways, but the solution was always like something that the man needed some emotional work that the man needed to do. Yeah. I think that's really key. It's like, they're not trying to prescribe anything for anybody else, which I think is really important. I do kind of wish that, well, I guess it must be out there, but I, I wish that somewhere maybe, you know, in the introduction or something, they would be like, you know, we, we don't uh, want to, you know, we don't, we're not in the position to write a book like this for women, but if you're interested in reading that, here's a couple of options to go check out. I think that would be kind of cool. I know they have, there are some female authors listed in the back, like Alice, Alice Miller. Um, I read something by her once. Um, yeah. But, you know, there's like, in the in the back, they have selected readings on, various things, including boy psychology and man psychology, but I kind of wish they had, you know, women's psychology, gay man psychology, gay woman psychology, trans man, you know, just all these, it'd be nice to have that whole range and just sort of with a similar approach, but, but with somebody from somebody writing, writing it, who was in that community, writing for their own community that way. And I could read it as an outsider more. Yeah. Yeah, well, a good place to start as a bridge, there's a book called The Maiden King by Robert Bly and Marion Woodman. And it's about, it's about the reunion of masculine and feminine. Oh, cool. Okay. Robert Bly and Marion Woodman. Marion Woodman. Okay, cool. Um, But I wanted to read... One of my favorite sections of of love of King Warrior Magician Lover comes in the introduction when they're writing about patriarchy. And they say, in our view, patriarchy is not the expression of deep and rooted masculinity, for truly deep and rooted masculinity is not abusive. Patriarchy is the expression of the immature masculine. It is the expression of boy psychology and, in part, the shadow, or crazy, side of masculinity. It expresses the stunted masculine, fixated at immature levels. Patriarchy, in our view, is an attack on masculinity in its fullness as well as femininity in its fullness. Those caught up in the structures and dynamics of patriarchy seek to dominate not only women but men as well. Patriarchy is based on fear, the boy's fear, the immature masculine sphere of women, to be sure, but also fear of men. Boys fear women. They also fear real men. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's from the beginning of the book, right? Yeah. 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 Well, I think that's probably a a good place to stop, unless there's anything else you want to get into. No, I think... No, I think that's really good. All right. Well, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast. And hopefully 
sometime in the future we can have a follow-up episode about Iron John. I think that's, yeah, I think it's a different and different enough approach that it's worth talking about that book separately. Yeah, absolutely. Although we we did cover a lot of it here today, um, and then I mean, for me, this book, King Warrior, Magician Lover, is the introductory book to four other books in which they break down each archetype more extensively. So uh, okay. that, <laughs> which is a lot, but. Um, for me and my reading goals, um, I will eventually swing back around and, and read each of those individually. Okay, I'll have to check those out. I definitely want to check out the Warrior one at least. Yeah, same, yeah. You can find the Placebo Magic Podcast and my poetry and other writing on the web at farmcodegary.com. Send your feedback to farmcodegary at protonmail.com and let me know if I can read your feedback on the show. Music is by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. You can support the show by giving us a review on your podcast app of choice, sharing an episode with a friend, or becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash placebo magic. Patreon supporters also gain access to our Patreon-exclusive bonus show. Remember, magic is a metaphor and metaphor is magical.